Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. I thought I was turning the volume down there, turns out I was actually skipping the song. <laughs> I'm your host, as always, Kane Sims, and uh, today we're going to have an immense uh, conversation because uh, our guest today, Raj Tumaluri, is uh, literally one of the industry's most experienced uh practitioners and business leaders in this field of conversational AI. Uh, his record speaks for itself, and I'm going to introduce him in just a moment. Uh, he is the CEO of OpenStream AI, recently crowned in the visionary quadrant of the Gartner Magic Hype Cycle, uh, Magic Quadrant rather, uh, the only company actually in the visionary quadrant. And so I'm really excited to see just what is so visionary, visionarily uh, about OpenStream. So I'm really excited for that conversation. Uh, but before we welcome Raj, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Deep Ground and Symbol AI for presenting and sponsoring this episode of VUX World. You'll have learned a lot more about DeepGram if you attended our webinar, which we did uh, a couple of weeks back, not last week. In fact, it was last week. Uh, and we dove really deep into what it takes to build a truly conversational AI. We might touch on some of that stuff as well today when we speak to Raj. DeepGram is industry-leading speech recognition. And crucially, as you start to develop your maturity and you start to deploy more sophisticated solutions, you will absolutely be trying to squeeze every ounce of accuracy out of all of your AI models and models and retraining or being able to retrain your speech recognition system is crucial to feeding accurate data into your NLU. And DeepGram is literally one of the best in the market at being able to offer you those kind of capabilities. If you want to learn more about how to implement industry-leading speech recognition into your voice AI capabilities, then please do go to deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. And Symbol AI, is a conversational intelligence platform, uh, a suite of APIs that enables you to build almost anything that you can imagine from being able to extract data within conversations that you didn't even know existed. And so, for example, you can build things like agent assist capabilities where you can have a, an AI assistant sitting, listening to calls, listening to the user, listening to the agent and being able to suggest next best actions and stuff like that. You can use it for doing things like meeting notes, summaries, summarization, topic summarization, speaker identification, and a whole bunch more. It's really, really impressive. So check out symbol.ai if you want to learn more about that. That's S-Y-M-B-L dot A-I to learn more. And that's kind of about it. And thank you for Symbol and Dave Grant for, sp for, for sponsoring this episode. Now, without further ado, please, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome Raj Tumaluri, who is the CEO of OpenStream AI. Raj, welcome to VUX World. There we go. Where are Thanks. you? There you are. <laughs> Hi. How's it going? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. I know that it is your end of year today, and so it's such a busy afternoon ahead. So thank you for spending some time, uh, for some spend some time joining us. No worries. Uh, so, so first of all, congratulations on the the Gartner uh, Magic Quadrant positioning. It was the kind of Magic Quadrant was, you know. Almost, well, everyone in the industry knew it was coming, but no one really knew exactly who was going to be in there. And so when it came out, it was a really interesting read. <clears throat> and OpenStream, the, the sole proprietor of that visionary position, which I think was quite unique. So I'm really keen to learn more about OpenStream and what it is and how it, what makes it so visionary and so different. But you yourself are really kind of like, you know, we're, we're in the presence of some kind of like uh, speech recognition royalty here um, because your kind of background and experience is absolutely unbelievable. So I'm wondering whether you might be able to just share a little bit about yourself with our audience and, and you know, share a little bit about your experience and your your kind of uh, journey up to OpenStream. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, I would keep it brief. Uh, obviously, you know, we st I started in the speech recognition uh, technology some 25 years back and literally worked with every possible speech vendor that is out there and uh, went through nuance acquiring each one of them. Uh, <laughs> finally, that getting acquired by Microsoft now. And of course, you know, more than myself, and I surround myself with uh, people that are much smarter than me. Um, our chief scientist, a shout out to him, Dr. Phil Cohen, is, is one of the pioneers in the space. And uh, he at SRI uh, was the one that uh, originally wrote an open agent architecture uh, that most of the virtual assistants of today are based on that. And uh, since uh, you spoke about in one of your previous episodes about Adam Shire, Adam Shire was an intern under Professor Cohen at SRI. Wow. Uh, and so so that has the foundation of the city right there. And uh, so the team of uh, research scientists that we have are, are all like uh, pioneers in the space in terms of dialogue engine and other things. And we do things slightly differently from most other companies because we've been at it for long. Um, so anyway, that's all experiential learning and we can discuss that. Yeah, mm, yeah interesting. So. Well, one of the things that caught my eye, I mean, you mentioned as we, before we kind of started this uh, this show, you kind of referenced a couple of episodes that we've done in the past, which was with Chandra Katri from Got It AI yeah. uh, and some of the ones that we've been looking at, which has been really kind of exploring those emerging technologies that, you know, startups that are, you know, building, uh, I suppose, a slightly different approach to NLU capabilities. And what the trend I've noticed from talking to those kind of companies, like Got It AI, like Zero Shop Bot, like Vlooper, um, you know, Seeker Technologies, a bunch of companies like that, is that they all have this academic background. They all come out of academia where they study how natural language understanding could potentially work, prove out a theory and build something on top of it. And what's really interesting about OpenStream is that when you look at most of the conversational AI providers out there, a lot of them are, I would say, kind of like front ends to uh, what you say, more like traditional kind of NLUs, which is not a criticism because I think that the, the requirement for democratizing it is absolutely needed. Yeah. But, but OpenStream is fairly unique because you do have a very deep academic background which must lead itself then into creating some slightly different technology. So I'm wondering if you can, first of all, shed a bit of a light on the kind of such a focus on the kind of academic side of things and how that approach has led to what is different about OpenStream. Yeah, that's actually a good question because, you know, you can't be developing um, things that are, you know, basically rooted in deep AI technologies without really working with academia and being in the academics for uh, for a long time. So some of my colleagues have, have, are still publishing. And uh, so we actually have been working on this technology for a while. Um, but, you know, both in, in terms of uh, research, in academic research, and as well as standardization of this, you know, I was actually myself at, at the W3C Multimodal Interaction Working Group. Uh, I co-wrote the standard for MMI architecture. Um, so basically, we, we have got a good mix of uh, both the research backing and as well as the foundations in standardization and interoperability. So that puts us in a unique position that we are not trying to build some GUI tool as a front end to some other models that are, you know, logistic regression models that are available on the cloud. So we would rather, you know, so therefore we are focusing on the 
real conversation as opposed to an if-then-else code and that probably, you know, there, I mean, I'm again not criticizing those things because they are also needed. It's simple enough for uh, certain use cases and uh, they might as well do that. Uh, but but for anything meaningful that you want to do uh, with complex use cases uh, that that the some of our largest enterprise clients have, you need to really have a, you know core technology in place, uh, both from from the knowledge representation, knowledge extraction, and and also you know basically you know, having the the speech recognition and also uh, basically dialogue processing, like you know so that is that is where. Uh, we try to infer, um, you know, the the plans of the user when they ask a question, rather than literally uh, looking at the meaning of whatever they asked, you know, and trying to provide an answer. The case in point: if I'm asking, are there any Indian restaurants nearby? My intent is not to merely know yes, there are or no, there aren't. I would my plan probably would be to go there after this <laughs> and have some lunch. Uh, so in which case, you know, we, I expect a, a real assistant of mine would have just told me that Raj, you know, there are three restaurants. The closest one, you know, doesn't have any tables available, reservations available. The next one is about 20 minutes away. Shall I get you directions for that? They'll take walk-ins. So that would be the real assistance. You know, we are just focusing on the the assistant part of the virtual assistant or intelligent assistant. Because are we just a Q&A system that just answering a question with a literal uh, answer? Or are you trying to infer the plans of the user and trying to be helpful? Obviously, no matter what system you build, uh, people out there can make any system fail. We all learned that, right? So, but then, you know, the 90% of the users are not really looking at, uh, you know, trying to be wise with your system, trying to break your system and do things like that. You know, we have seen lots of jokes about, uh, you know, Viv or uh, or Siri, you know, but that, uh, that's all like, you know, at the surface level, you know, it's, it's for fun. But, but other than that, you know, there are, you know, pretty decent things that you can accomplish in terms of uh, productivity gains and then operational cost reduction and things like that that you can achieve. Uh, and th- those are things that are possible when you focus on assisting the users as opposed to just answering the questions. So that is what we focus on as called, uh, we call it as plan-based dialogue engine. So which is unique kind of, you know, across the industry, there's no one else that's doing that today. I, we have seen some traces of uh, these things happening in some of the labs at Microsoft and others, but uh, not at in commercially. We are the only vendors that are doing the plan-based dialogue engine commercially. Interesting. So is is that something akin to something like Alexa conversations, would you say, where the model itself is, is dictating where the conversation ought to go? Is that is that kind of the general gist or not? Or I misunderstood uh, that. Well, more, I mean, I have not had full experience with uh, Amazon interactions much, but, uh, well, you know, it depends on uh, what they have trained it with, because I would suspect that unless you train it on the, on the domain specific data of the enterprise in question, Mm. you won't be able to do this with generic uh, stuff, you know? So it's not like, you know, in the case like take one of the insurance companies that we work with. So they have this gadget insurance that they do in across different countries. Um, so depending on the country where uh, where you are offer, offering this insurance product, see the, the claim process varies slightly. So this has to be grounded in the flow um, that is there in those documents. So you have to glean from those things and represent that knowledge and then operate on that to provide your dialogue engine to, mm-hmm. to the customer. 
So you can't do that generically saying that, okay, I know insurance domain and I know what claim means. I know how to do that. And you can't really do that because you don't know what to ask next. Right. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I think the Alexa conversations one is very much kind of like more of those horizontal use cases around like booking stuff and stuff like that, yeah. um, which is fine. But, you know, the, the, the business domain specific use cases is where the real kind of value is for most businesses, you know. They're all good for, you know, obviously they're suited for the frame set dialogues. That is what you call as intent and slot models. Yes. If you have intent and slot models, because then it will work. But in real life, you know, as you know, in conversations, it is never going to be a specific intent and atomic value. Uh, mm-hmm. The case point, like, you know, if you are trying to schedule this meeting, uh, you and I are not going to say that, okay, how about 11 a.m. tomorrow? You know, we are going to say, when are you free next week? And you would say that any day is okay in the afternoons except Wednesday or mm-hmm. things like that. You would always give a constraint as opposed to an atomic value as an answer. So most of the intent slot models of the frame set dialogue systems would actually fail when you start giving that kind of a constraint. Right. Very interesting. And so OpenStream then, so are you saying that OpenStream doesn't strictly use the kind of intent and entity based? It actually knows the semantic meaning of what has been said. Right. Which is the reason why we have a portfolio strategy. Uh, we our NLE engine comprises of uh, you know the semantic parser, multilingual semantic parser that we have, as well as the BERT model, which is the derivative that we have, which is patented in three BERT model. So we use a combination of these things as a as a portfolio strategy, and then we use the context manager to determine which of those is the most appropriate answer for the dialogue engine to use to determine the next date and the next dialogue. Right. Very interesting. Kind of approach that we do. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. So that requires quite a lot of really to understand at the semantic level, you need to really understand the domain that you're talking about, isn't it? So presumably you have a more domain focused, you have specific industries that you work with. Yeah. About four or five industries where we have uh, industry leading domain models. Uh, insurance, financial services, healthcare, and, you know, some of the defense applications. Uh, for those things, we do have domain models. So yeah. we understand the variations thereof. And then, of course, you augment that with uh, with other data specific to that particular enterprise, and you have a very fine-tuned model with that and so that you don't have to develop anything from scratch, and uh, you can actually leverage that. And then our dialogue engine can reason it out from that point on as to what the user said. So this kind of helps in terms of handling negations and, and superlatives and things like that, which as you all, you, you probably know this very well. Mm. If you try that with any of your popular assistants on your phone. Um, if I ask a question, you know, show me restaurants nearby, but not Chinese or Korean or things like that, you know, this will eventually show you Chinese and Korean and not anything. <laughs> so it's, it's like the, the ability to handle the uh, the negations and things like that is not present in some of the models that you have in the marketplace. Yeah. So when you have a semantic representation and we are doing semantic parser, it's an old idea, but we are using that with neural nets. So it's a neural net-based semantic parser as opposed to language-based, uh, purely language-based semantic parser like before, like grammar-based mm-hmm. systems. So in that sense, uh, this has got the advantage of both the neural net uh, type system and then we get our knowledge store itself is, is, is independent of the language. So, or, or even for that matter, domain actually. 
and then you can you can actually uh, train this very quickly, uh, make this available in different languages. So today that is how we are able to support some 45 plus languages in about 100 plus dialects um, around the world. And uh, the key thing there is that how quickly can we make a new language available? Mm. And that is sensitive to, to the culture and the way they say it and all the stuff, you know, including natural language generation. It's not just about understanding what the user is saying, but also how you re- generate the response. So we use the, the conventional model of you know, logical forms, and then we train that with logical forms. And then uh, we establish the equivalence of the logical forms to get into the other language. So that is how we quickly are able to support uh, you know, other languages. Mm, very nice. Very nice. The domain's focus is, is really interesting because the more that we kind of explore, you know, getting really high accuracy out of a conversation, you know, if an enterprise is handling, I don't know, a million conversations a month, then you could implement something uh, that has something like a 50% accuracy rate as in like you want to call it containment if you want but like 50 percent of the of the conversations that the assistant has are successful ones and that would be kind of good enough if 50 percent of them are escalated if you've got that bot handling i don't know a few thousand hundred thousand calls a, a, a month or so that's really good but you're still leaving a hell of a lot on the table and so my, I'm assuming you're going to agree with this given the approach that you've taken, but having that domain-specific focus and focusing around building a language model that truly understands insurance, for example, means that you're not dealing with these kind of like th- this suite of conversations is a 30% success rate. You're kind of dealing with a lot higher degrees of accuracy. Would that be, would that be fair to say? Absolutely, because our clients don't accept anything less than 70 to 75%. Hmm. of automatic handling because automation is the key and then uh, we can we guarantee a deflection rate of 75 percent uh, you know typically it's hmm. there on our website itself i'm not trying to plug in <laughs> stuff, but, uh, you know we guarantee that we achieve that and yeah. uh, because and that's you, you're absolutely right because when you because you can't you know they, they, it's commendable what some of the large companies and the multi-billion dollar investments into a and conversational AI are achieving, but those are all good. Um, but we are not there yet when it comes to enterprise level, enterprise grade applications in real life. It's not like finding who is the president of the country or how the weather is or, or telling a story or a joke. Uh, I'm not trivializing that because there is definitely a lot of progress that has been made, especially in generative uh, you know, languages, uh, basically systems. Uh, but but we are not there yet. You know, there's a lot of hype around, you know, some of the things. I just don't know how to name them, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so if, if you have 175 billion parameters, then you you expect that you would be more accurate than anybody else. And the recent studies have shown that the actually the more you trigger, like you say, always say, the garbage in, garbage out. What kind of data that you have trained the system with? If you are really looking at 175 billion parameters, then probably you don't have that that good a data to train the system with. So it's not the fault of the model that it's failing, but it's the fault of the data that you have to train. So the cost of training being prohibitive notwithstanding, even the performance is also suffering. In fact, if we, there's one study that, is, that shows that it asks a question like, you know, when you smash a mirror, what happens? And uh, most of the models up to about 13 million parameters 
um, say that okay you smash it into small pieces or you know and then it one of them will start giving a definition at seven million parameters or so a mirror is something that you know that reflects light and if you smash it then you can't see your reflection so mm -hmm. it's almost like we could be answer but here is an interesting catch when you go to 175 billion parameters it says that you get seven years of bad luck so <laughs> you know what it is feeling like. <laughs> so you are essentially taking some garbage from some 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 news article somewhere, and some cultures they believe that if you break glass, then you have years of bad luck. So my point being that you know the it's it's not like bigger is better always. Uh, so it, it's about the quality of data that you use to train your models and how well they work. So it's it's in a way it's good because that way there is it's the the field is leveled. Mm. Uh, between the multi-billion dollar investments and smaller players like us uh, with, the, with the approaches that, you know, our approaches are adequate both from a cost perspective and also from accuracy perspective uh, for, for productivity gains. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of gets, gets you running as opposed to spending $10 million to just train a, train a model on your enterprise data. Mm, mm, that's a very good that's a very good point um, yeah everyone must have seven years of bad luck because I'm sure everyone smashed a mirror at some point in their life I mean that's, that might be half of the problem that's wrong with with all the shit stuff that's going on in the world everyone's smashing mirrors <laughs> but I've heard you you've mentioned it a few times uh, certainly at the top of the conversation you were talking um, you know about you, the term you were using often was assistance and that's the term you know you're talking about Phil Cohen and and being there from you know the founding of, of uh, or managing Adam Trier, which led to Siri and stuff like that, building the frameworks and stuff, and it's like that's the term that I tend to use quite a, quite a lot when describing these things is, is assistance, AI assistance, virtual assistance, things like that, digital assistance. There there is some terminology that is used which is around bots. I think that the bot terminology kind of comes from the chat bot space where they're very just much just like pretty dumb button pushing things whereas the assistant terminology tends to come more from the kind of siri alexa google assistant sort of space where they are broad in terms of capabilities uh, and they're there to do to be genuinely assistive rather than kind of like narrow and focused stuff like that so i'm curious about what your sort of like where OpenStream plays now and where you think it will play in the future? Because inevitably, you know, in the Gartner report and stuff like that, OpenStream is in there because you're delivering on the enterprise. You're delivering enterprise use cases, presumably across uh, call centers, large call centers, things like that. Yet you know, the, way you the way that you describe it with the terminology sounds more akin to the kind of like Alexa on device ambient computing kind of model. So I'm curious about where you think or where you see OpenStream today versus where it's heading. Is it an enterprise automation AI company or is it kind of voice AI capabilities that will stray into this more ambient computing world? Well, that's an interesting observation, but uh, let me first clarify that we are not just voice, we are multimodal. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, first of all, take computer vision and, and speech and gesture and many other things to interpret the intent. So a lot of our referential expressions are not really all in voice. So you can actually have some of the things, I want this, but not that, is something that I can gesture at and say. So this that can also be interpreted by our system. Uh, but to, for, to your first part of the question, uh, you know, yes, you the assist. Uh, we are we are our product is called Eva, which stands for Enterprise Virtual Assistant. Our engineers will also call it as Embodied Virtual Assistant because we also have an avatar and non-verbal behavior generation, and a whole lot of other multimodal features. 
but but uh, Eva, because the the differentiation that we I would draw is that like we didn't play in the space of chatbots, so to speak, which are at least in the industry kind of uh, change the meaning of the words. Chatbot actually could be your virtual assistant too, mm-hmm. because it's just automating a lot of things. But most people use the word chatbot to infer that you are doing some FAQs and some mapping of intents to some some static data, and then you're just repurposing that content. Uh, but that's not what the assistance is. Assistance means that you have the ability to think what the user has asked and your answers are not readily available in a database or or something where you can just look up and per, and provide that uh, for example if i were to ask you um, what is meant by out of pocket limit for health insurance um, so that is probably something that you can look up and any bot can provide you an answer mm-hmm. and now i'm asking a different question have i reached my out of pocket limit mm. So that is actually a composite question. So you have to first know what is out-of-pocket limit and what is Raj's out-of-pocket limit. And then you have to also know how much he has spent against the out-of-pocket limit for the year. Um, That will be in a transactional database in a totally different system. And you have to decompose the utterance into multiple questions to different disparate systems and then combine them and then generate an answer. And that I call as assistance, not just, you know, the way you said it, like Siri or something else, which will just when you ask a question, it will throw you a bunch of URLs and shows you a response and that's where it ends. And some of them may take, you know, a couple of more turns, uh, but but that still doesn't get them to qualify as assistance, if you will. I mean, again, people may disagree with me, but our own nomenclature is that, um, users have something to accomplish, whether it is submitting a claim or getting a claim processed or knowing a claim status or, or, or trying to purchase a product or searching for a product, you know, whatever that they want to do. And those are the things that they should be able to perform. And we should be automating the process to assist them and in, in trying to not make this whole thing chatty. Mm. Um, we have to glean a lot of information from the environment, from the context, from whatever the person has been doing, so that every single thing doesn't have to be spelt out, either by end user or by the developer. Again, we're we're mindful of what our developers are. In fact, if you look at it, developers are our customers because end mm-hmm. customers are their customers, right? Mm-hmm. So the, if, if you have to really code, you know, for example, there should be common beliefs in the system mutual beliefs like you know when you and I if I if I just you know get a call and I turn my head away you know that you cannot you should not ask a question because you know that I'm distracted so you are allowing me that courtesy of you know completing whatever I'm I'm I, I, you know, interrupted me and uh, and then ask resume your question later similarly when I say something like you know I, I have a doctor's appointment this afternoon when I'm trying to schedule an appointment with you um, then you implicitly understand that I can't make it, although mm-hmm. I have explicitly stated that. But then how many of these things can you code for each utterance? So I could be saying I have a parent-teacher meeting, or I could be taking my, my like your son, taking him to the park or for Easter egg hunting or whatever. <laughs> you know, all those things mean that you can't do a podcast. You can't do your, your work. 
So that is kind of an implicit understanding that uh, the society we have kind of developed, understood. So similarly, can we make these systems mimic the kind of social behavior that we have, where we understand implicitly that all these mutual beliefs of both the user and the system, in this case, virtual assistant, are all at one place. And then all you are doing is that you are just mentioning or coding, uh, if you will, enumerating the kind of beliefs in the system. And then the system's intentions are then available. And then kind of the system reasons out based on when you say, you know, I have a doctor's appointment, then the system reasons, oh, he has a doctor's appointment. That means he can't make this appointment. So I need to offer it a second alternative for him for some other time, day or time. So that is real assistance. And this is not something that your conventional, uh, you know, context uh, unaware assistants can do. Mm, that's very interesting. And what you just described there in terms of teaching the assistant these kind of fundamental social understandings, is that something, are you talking aspirationally there? Are you are you talking about this is actually what OpenStream's capability does? I can, I can do a demo. I know it's a podcast, but I can do a demo of that system where you can see how we code the beliefs and other things in the system as opposed to coding every dialogue and every utterance of the end user, like in a scripted dialogue. You right. We are just stating, we are, we are uh, and coding the facts. Uh, we are codifying the knowledge and uh, and allowing the system and we are basically giving some sample set of questions so that the system can understand you know how people ask those questions and can get trained on such type of questions and then after that it tries to interpret the meaning of those questions and then tries to figure out based on uh, the the knowledge and, uh, and and the beliefs that the system has and reasons it out and that's the power of the plan based dialogue engine wow that is that is very powerful. That's what probably, you know, made us deserve the visionary thing. In fact, uh, next, uh, not to plug another event, but there's going to be a conversational interaction conference in, uh, in San Jose on the 12th and 13th. Uh, both Phil and I will be presenting there at, uh, on some of these things, and we will be actually demonstrating that there uh, to, to the people. Wow. Well, I will look forward to, hopefully this, it's going to be available on catch up. I'll put the link down here and I'll put it in the show notes, conversational interaction conference. I know uh, of a few people who are going to that actually. And so I'm hoping I can catch some of these talks and see that demo because that would be, that would be very good. Um, and it, yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a really unique approach um, and it definitely does explain how uh, OpenStream is in that kind of visionary quarter because it's not, um, yeah, it's not conventional and it takes more than intents and slots. It actually takes proper understanding of linguistics uh, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which I think is really interesting. You kind of alluded just then, and you mentioned multimodal. We're definitely going to get, get onto that topic, so I'm really keen to, to kind of explore that. Um, but you also mentioned about the assistant capability being something that is essentially helping someone get a job done, and it doesn't need to be kind of chit-chatty kind of thing. I'm curious about your thoughts on the whole chit-chat concept, because maybe it's 2017, 2018, 
chatbots, uh, you know, people who are creating chatbots put a lot of effort into that kind of like, you know, the little kind of like small talk and what's your name and are you a bot and stuff like that? Because I think users were trying to just like test it and stuff. I think we probably grew out of that a little bit now, but I wonder whether you can shed some light on, on you know, what your, what your thoughts are around the kind of small talk, chit chat, personality no, design. Are, uh, that's a very good question, actually. You know, while it may have started as, you know, do you love me and things like that. <laughs> things that we all watched on Siri and on Big Bang Theory. Uh, but, but you know, there are meaningful chit chats that you could do. For example, when you're trying to schedule an appointment in our case, and I often do this as part of our demo, um, if the person might ask when you, after you have scheduled the appointment for them to come, uh, the guy is going to ask, how is the weather going to be on that day? Mm which is a totally different question, not in line of whatever your, your workflow is. So meaning that if it's going to snow or if it's going to be you know, raining heavily or something like that, then the guy probably can't make the appointment. So that correlation is something the dialogue engine must establish. So it's not really a chit chat, but it is a digression. It is a digression from the, from the flow of your conversation, but you're coming back to it because you are seeing what is the relevance of that to the current conversation. And that is where the dialogue engine has to be smart. Mm. So this, is, this is the kind of chit chat that we do. We provide other services, like how is the weather going to be on that day? And indoor, you know, it's, it's, you can simply say, you know, there are a lot of ways, uh, like people say that you can express uh, a particular intent. Uh, the boundary conditions are always going to be there. Those things have to be explicitly coded. The system mm -hmm. can't reason it out. Uh, if I just say it's hot in here um, or or simply, you know, I don't like text messages at lunchtime. Am I giving an implicit instruction to block text messages or am I just stating my preference as to what it is that I want to do? So those mm -hmm. are difficult to interpret, but you have to really do that based on the context and based on the use case. You have to do take one decision or the other. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um Talk us through the multimodal side of things as well, then, because you you mentioned so Eva is also the name of the avatar that you created, the digital avatar. Is that true? The digital um, assistant is called Eva, and so is the platform. Yes. So, so where does the digital avatar appear? What, how would someone interact with that? Is this a website thing? Is this like a hologram kind of in person thing? How does that how does that side of things work? It's a, it's a physical avatar. Um, so you, if you have a mobile app or something like that, it, it has a, an avatar that appears and you can actually converse with it using speech or whatever else that you choose. So mm -hmm. the case in point is multimodal is that let's say you're trying to submit a claim for an insurance auto accident. So it asks you for the VIN number or vehicle identification number. So how do you give the vehicle identification number? You know, that will be a 16-digit number or 17-digit number, and you can't enter that in the, in the text field of a mobile phone. You can actually take that and make that as a camera and then point it out to the windshield of your car, and it picks it up from there. Or you can just read it out aloud. Mm. And then it asks you for your odometer reading and things like that. Then you can just point your camera. Same, the assistant, you, you point that to your, your uh, odometer reading and then it kind of does an OCR, takes a picture and automatically populates that. So all these things are going to reduce the errors and also make, the, make it very, very fast and quick to submit a claim. So the whole process of submission of claim will be so fluid that, you know, it's so easy to do it. Mm. Uh, 
as opposed to making it chatty, like, you know, okay, tell me what is your vehicle identification number. I have mm-hmm. to type that out. And then I have to read what is there on the on the odometer and enter that information. And then you might ask, you know, take these pictures of your car around that and show me where the damage has happened. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes what happens is once you take the pictures and you submit all those things and the insurance company comes back and tells you, hey, you know, the picture was blurry or <laughs> it's low light or the we couldn't see the damage. And therefore, you know, it again becomes iterative. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what you mean by chatty. You know, you don't want to be asking all these questions again and again. While you are taking the picture itself, the edge AI, Eva can do, if it is blurry, it will, it will automatically detect the blur or it will automatically detect a low light and it will tell you, hey, you know what, take the, take that again, mm. take the picture again. And when you submit, you, know, you, can, you have an ability to annotate and say, you know, this is where the windshield is damaged, you know, as you can see here. And then with annotation, you can speak also at the same time. So it's a multimodal annotation. So now you can see how this can be useful in different scenarios. From a technology paradigm perspective, all you are doing is you are taking some image and you are, you are scribbling something on top of it. You are probably highlighting some region of interest. Mm-hmm. And you are also speaking what it is that you are doing. While you are doing that, you are qualifying what you are doing there. So it could be, you know, so a, a, a diagnostic report that some doctor is kind of highlighting, trying to get a second opinion and collaborate with their colleagues. Or it could be a legal document that your colleagues are all reviewing a contract saying that you know, this clause doesn't look okay, can you change this clause? Mm. And then kind of annotating. So there's, there's no ambiguity about what you're referring to. It makes it that much easier for people to really convey what they're trying to uh, convey, you know, with, because I don't have to say that on page 14, section two is where I need you to change the verbiage as opposed to, you know, here it is, you know, as I open it, you know, you see clearly what I said, and then you can actually pre- automatically place it out. So mm-hmm. that's what I mean by multimodal. Of course, there are tons of other applications. You know, you could, for example, if I'm oftentimes it happens that, uh, you know, I need to pick up something on the way home. So I can't use location services um, of, of anything. I want to see, because I'm going by this highway, and I want to see, are there any shops that sell this in this area? Mm. I want to mark that. And that is not defined by a zip code or a pin code or a postal code. That is not by a town name. That is by an area that I have chosen arbitrarily based on what path I'm going to take on that day. And then I should be able to circle that or I draw a line and say, show me where I can buy in this path. Mm. So that is a multimodal intent that you're conveying, where you're asking a question through the speech, and then you're also gesturing on the, on the screen at the same time. These two are processed in conjunction to interpret your intent. So I could just be asking anything. You know, show me the pharmacies that are open here, which have COVID tests, kids available in this area, mm. not, not where I am. Not, I'm not asking for where at my workplace. I want to specifically ask where I want. This is an everyday requirement for most of us. Mm. Mm. We're not looking at spending more time near the office. <laughs> interesting. So it's, it's really interesting this because it's kind of making me think that on the one hand, you've got like, that that kind of use case that you described there, the the um, the car kind of use case, you know, let's say that it's a 
uh, as you said, you're making a claim or you want to, you know, get your windscreen fixed or whatever. That makes sense from a point of view of like, let's say like an auto glass or an insurance company would have that use case. You go into the app, you go through the app, it's conversational, you can talk to it, you can take pictures, that kind of stuff. But then you start talking about kind of like, uh, you know, you're driving home and you should be able to circle something on a map and say, show me petrol stations here or whatever. That kind of leads me to think about like, you know, the, the my hey Mercedes or the, uh, the BMW assistant in vehicle, uh, and then also, you know, circulating the map and saying stuff like, show me um, pharmacies where COVID tests are available. That kind of leads me to think about this being something that can operate at more of an operating system level, like the kind of capability you would expect something like Apple to have in their maps capability. And the, the use case around the, um, the the insurance seems to be something that would go really nicely hand in hand with like a, a UJet contact center solution or something like that. So it's almost like, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what I'm trying to say. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that from hearing you describe the technology and hearing you describe the kind of use cases, it seems to me that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the open stream technology could be used in a industry specific, you know, omni-channel customer service situation. Could be used potentially alongside a, a UCAS solution or CCAS solution yes. uh, to to enable kind of like wider transformation. But then at the same time, it could potentially be used on device or at an operating system level to yes. enable horizontal kind of capabilities. It's like where where's the, where does where does it end? <laughs> no, it's, it's you're you're right because when we started originally. None of these things existed in the marketplace. And as you said, slowly things have started happening. For example, we have a feature called Set Focus. If you see Apple, today you have a focus feature and all those things. So those mm-hmm. are some of the things that are patented by us. Uh, it's slightly different. You know, their, their focus operation is different from our focus operation. But these are things that you know, our, our requirement is our users are mobile and they could be stationary and uh, they could be anywhere. And so we need to work on whatever, we meet customers on their preferred channel, their preferred devices. So we need to work on as part of the mobile app, as part of the telephone channel, as part of the social messenger, you name it. So it, so therefore, if you have a UCAS provider, of course we work with UCAS providers. We integrate with some of the some of their agent desktops. We, we, we provide the context of interaction completely before we transfer, uh, when we transfer to them. Uh, so that they have the full information. And then we will probably also facilitate a transfer back to us. So oftentimes it happens, as you know, when you see a doctor, the doctor sees you, and before you see the doctor, somebody else collects all the information about you. Mm. They prepare you for everything. And then the doctor's time is precious. Likewise, a human agent is precious. So you just only use them for their expertise. And then when you ask, okay, doctor, when do you want me to come and see you? He said, go to the front desk and they'll schedule you. <laughs> that means that is not a task that I need to be doing for you. And some my assistant will do that. So that means you can actually transfer from a human to the assistant again. And then, ah. then resume the conversation from that point on. So that is kind of prevalent in most of our deployments where we do the transfer from the, the assistant to the human as well as from the human to the assistant. So uh, really, that's that's where the differentiation comes. And it's not like we can stop at one place. You know, we have to, some people say that, okay, it's not like I have everything when I have network and connectivity and I have nothing if I don't have any connectivity. That's not going to work for us because people want to review things and people want to interact with the system even when they're offline. Uh, 
So therefore, we had to build some of the things like models on the edge so that, you know, you train the models in the cloud and then, then you load the models on the, on the edge and you're able to run them uh, even if you don't have connectivity to the network. But then, of course, you do publish uh, the next model and next things, and uh, based on part of your reinforcement learning that happens, you know that mm. that's something that you push to all the edge devices. Mm-hmm. That is why you see that you know where are we? You know because the world is divided. Once the conversational AI has become fashionable to talk about, people have put that into silos, like saying that okay, I am this guy, I am the UKS provider. Of course, that is also blurring now, as you can see. Most of the contracts and providers have started offering some kinds of bots, and then uh, people who stayed on the pure flow, pure play in, in natural language understanding and speech technology have started entering to like Google CCA for example and mm. you know, and many of, of these guys have, have started coming into that space so you it's just blurring now uh, but you see that you see where we are going with it because we are not a a generic provider of of a a logistic regression model on the cloud uh, we have to work across we work better when there is full connectivity mm-hmm. you're not cut off from the whole thing because you don't have connectivity that's yeah. the important thing for us Mm, yeah, you're right there that the lines are blurring. I mean, I've always seen because the we start we started this whole journey with VUX World started in the kind of voice assistant space, looking at your likes of Siri and Alexa and Google Assistant and all of those things, and then that kind of led into independent voice assistants and edge computing for speech recognition and all that kind of stuff, and then eventually it kind of tracks into kind of like the more kind of natural language based stuff that's not specifically voice, so like chatbots and messaging bots and stuff like that, and then when you start looking at that you start looking at the enterprise you start looking at the call center and all of a sudden all of these technologies which is fundamentally all the exact same technology is horizontal capability isn't it it can run on an operate can run on a mobile device or a desktop or a laptop or inside an app or on a device or in a call center it doesn't really matter where it is you still need the same capabilities and that's kind of the view we've always had is that this technology is horizontal capability and it's just seen it can be applied everywhere whereas some companies who are contact center companies view themselves as kind of like contact center automation with AI. Some who are more kind of on the digital end view themselves as chatbot builders sort of thing. And some on the voices isn't end see themselves as voice marketers or something like that. So there's fragments kind of appearing, but it's all basically the exact same stuff. So having that approach of building the core capabilities really well, that can then be applied to wherever they can be applied, I think is a really sensible thing because you're not pigeonholed to any one industry or use case or channel, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. When you have the capabilities, your customer journey dictates what faculties you want to employ for a particular solution. So what is the customer trying to do? What are the things that you... Because oftentimes we have uh, the interaction happen through more than one touch point. So, you know, you you have seen, obviously, the cable modem guys and some of the cable companies trying to offer customer support service. You know, I don't know which is what is RJ45 and which of these slots that I should plug that into. (laughs) You you need to see what the person is seeing. And through the camera, simultaneously, you're watching, you could be holding one device for this and another device uh, that is showing the camera, or it could could all be in one device, you know, as the case may be. So you have a group of devices that you can employ as part of your your workflow interaction. Uh, some of the nurses that go and offer the care, patient care, um, they have a lot of uh, healthcare uh, HDP profile devices like measuring instruments. 
So they can just say, you know, once they measure uh, BP or whatever, they can just say, okay, read that into this. And then you, you, the, the whole thing comes into your device and uh, once you measure it, because it knows of the presence of other devices in the vicinity and it knows how to connect to those things and it, it, is, it is aware of the fact that there are other devices, the discoverable. Uh, that are that are going to be paid now, and this also can apply to your core capabilities. In fact, I've written a spec on this at W3C on discoverability and uh, of, of the capabilities. So, for example, mm-hmm. my my assistant today, um, let's say you know my mortgage. Like, what happens when you go to a bank and you have a concierge person that kind of tries to address your needs, and then they try to get the other person to come and help you with the financial advice or mortgage or anything else, because those people are subject matter experts. But when you, when you ask, you know, what kind of home can I afford and things like that. And if I don't find the mortgage guy available that day, then he'll say that, you know, sorry, today he's not available. But if the person is available, okay, let me get that for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you say. That means you have as a concierge bot or a master bot or a master assistant, have the ability to see what other faculties faculties that you have that you can uh, employ as part of your solution. And, and for that, you need a capability for registration of such capabilities and discoverability of such capabilities. For example, language translation is another example. Somebody is asking, okay, do I have a Spanish translation of this or Chinese translation of this? Um, you know, so I, can you can you interpret this? You know, I may have entire thing in English, but then suddenly, if you want that, I have a another ASR engine that is already model that is available. Then all that I need to do is the siphon out your your audio stream to that, and because I have that available, and the rest of the logic and other things flow in the same way. Mm. So these are things that we can discover. Some some of these capable uh, faculties we can bring in dynamically into the mix, and then uh, provide that kind of facility to the end user. Mm. I've heard that that's how kind of Alexa is architected around that kind of concierge bot where the, the utterance comes in and it almost like feeds it through to a bunch of kind of sub bots, which says, OK, who can answer this to the greatest degree of confidence? Is that where you see kind of like the enterprise uh, voice assistants and, and AI assistants in general heading? It, it, it will be like that eventually, because, see, if you see this, you know, you're not going to have. You know, there is an app for that. There is an app for this app to save it. You know, now we have app explosion. Same thing, it's going to have bot explosion for every small function. If you start writing the bots that way, let there be one interface. You know, you need to have something that people know how to interact with. And then, like, that's how it happens when you physically go and the person will recognize you. And if they already recognize you, they, they only ask you for secondary identification when you're performing a high-value transaction. Otherwise, they, you can actually start engaging in a conversation. They don't ask you for ID proof or anything like that. So the same thing should happen with the virtual assistants also because they should know you once you walk into a restaurant. You know, if every day if you walk into your, your neighborhood restaurant in UK, you know, the guy recognizes you and says, okay, he gets your coffee the way you want it. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's the same thing, you know, it's the usual stuff. It just gives you a nod saying that it's the same order or not. In a small nod, you're conveying so much of meaning, which is which brings us to this, you know, next point that I'm trying to make, which is multimodal analysis, because you're missing out on the whole point. If you're trying to do a lot of sentiment analysis on the text, first of all, I think some of your earlier speakers talked about, uh, you know, if you lose the original voice signal, 
then you lost 50% of your ability to glean anything from it. Mm. You already got the text. So you don't know what is the emotion with which somebody said. Mm. This, this simple sentence like, you know, I don't think he should get a job can be said in, in 14 different ways <laughs> to mean diff- totally different things. Mm. And, you know, so be, depending on where you lay emphasis. So all that tonal uh, stuff uh, gives you a lot of information and that, that also helps you in analytics. That is on just the tone alone. But then I really like it. You know, I can say and rolling my eyes. So if you miss that and you only heard this, you probably think I really like it. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, the, the, the real life communication is not, you know, just like how there are no, um, you know, when you are trying to study science, um, we try to study them as electricity, magnetism, uh, and mechanical forces and things like that. But in real life, because that's easy for us to understand and grasp and get our head around them. But in real life, there is nothing called a pure magnetic force or a pure electric force or a pure mechanical force. You have a combination of all those things. One cannot be separated from the other. In a similar way, here also, you know, if you if you are building this virtual assistant and communication, communication is not unimodal. Because we couldn't do all these things, the technology did not exist. We were struggling with acoustic models that would work across, you know, noisy environments. And the speech recognition until 2012, uh, you know, was, was not so good. You know, today in New York, you don't have, you know, UK English, US English and some other English. You have people that speak 150 languages in Manhattan and surroundings. New York metro area. So if you are offering a brokerage solution or an insurance company solution as a bot, as that can take uh, any kind of modality and the speech and other stuff, you should be prepared for 150 different accents. <laughs> and it has to work across those things. And today we have achieved that thanks to deep learning, right? So we got, we, we got, we, we at least cracked the speech recognition portion of it. At least mm-hmm. today it's pretty, it's pretty good. In fact, even a strong accent and everyone says today I have laryngitis, but even with this kind of tone, I can still make my system understand me well. Uh, so you, my point being that the conversation must happen in the same way that you and I talk. Mm. So like this, because I can say simply, if I just get distracted, you should know immediately that I'm distracted and you pause. You don't you don't keep speaking. So if you are blind, only then that happens that way. So mm. and then, you know, I can always, I always, it is much easier for me to, let's say you're presenting me a graph. And I would like to say, you know, why is this high? Is something that I can gesture at that and ask. Mm. So I think one of your earlier speakers talked about this also. Because you need to have a representation of what it is in the visual modality in order for your speech modality to clearly uh, be understood, uh, you know, by your dialogue engine as to what you're referring to. Mm. And I need to have an grasp of whatever is represented there. For example, I think it's one of your TV guys that talked about it, I think. Yeah. I think uh, Disruptel or somebody. Yes, that's right, yeah. So the, those concepts, like, you know, so the TV doesn't know what it is displaying. So yeah. ask, you know, do we, you want you want to do Google Lens or Amazon Lens or whatever? Uh, you, you can do object recognition and other stuff, but from your side. But the system also should understand what it is displaying. Mm. So, and in fact, uh, Professor Wallister at DFKI in Germany always says that you should you cannot do anything without having the representation. So each each of those things have to be represented properly with a proper markup language, so you understand what is being displayed there, 
So when I ask, say like simple, even in the shopping experience, I mean, we are focused on enterprise, but you can also go for the commerce. I would like this in red color in XXL. Mm. So I am just asking, and what this indicates is a Ralph Lauren polo shirt, right? I am mm. specifying other attributes about that. So that is something that I should be able to do because that makes it a lot easier because it doesn't make it whole chat, the whole thing chatty. And then you can quickly convey your intent because we have shown that in the field, uh, you know, in fact, we've published on this one also about there is 30 to 40% reduction in the processing time for completing any task. If you employ multimodal techniques. Wow. So because 30 to 40%, 30 to 40% reduction. Wow. And uh, we, we can demonstrate that in field force automation, everything, you know, so because you are employing multimodal techniques, mm. this, this, this and that, you know, so it's, you convey that quickly, even for software bug reporting in our office, when we have something on the screen, you know, it's very difficult to tell people what I'm seeing. Then they'll ask, oh, I'm not able to reproduce this error. I'm not able to do that. And I have to take screenshot and send an email with writing. No. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's part of our applications. Every one of our applications is capable of uh, capturing the ink annotation and speech and everything else. You can actually capture that and say, you know, this is the bug that I see. This font is not aligned. So there is no ambiguity. There's no, uh, you know, nobody can deny that that has happened because that is available to you. So we have wow. multitude of applications like this where we are able to employ this multimodal technology to cut short the amount of time that you need to, to convey your intent or to resolve something. As they say, the first time user experience is, is so important. The first time resolution is so important. The semantic interpretation, because you can't be that, you know, I throw some five alternatives at you and then let you choose, you know. So that's not, we, we've gone past that, you know, we've graduated from, from those things. I mean, we did do those things 10, 10 15 years back. <laughs> You know, today we don't do those things anymore because uh, we we know how to uh, glean uh, from the utterance what probably the user meant. Mm, interesting. That is so interesting. The whole kind of multimodal thing is really interesting because, like, when you, as you begin to put this technology into new spaces, and and you wrap new use cases around it, the mental model of a user. I reckon will change, which is why it becomes more important to have that multimodal side of things. So, for example, if I'm just on a website and I've got a chatbot and it's just a pup, it's just a chatbot, and all I can do is talk to it, I'm kind of going to understand in my mental model the kind of things it's likely to be able to do because it's I've used one before and it know I know to be really short on my descriptions and stuff like that. Whereas if you take a voice assistant and that windscreen repair example that you're talking about you know you open your camera and you can point to something or annotate something it kind of the the mental model of the user at that time is totally different and they might just naturally come up with things and say things that you would not usually predict things like what's that or where's this or in that tv example with disruptor it's like who's the guy on the left like you wouldn't be able to really predict that someone's going to say who's the guy on the left because yes. you've never really had that technology in that environment in that context before so it's really yeah. interesting how the new context creates new requirements absolutely you know the the, the classic you know in fact I, I tell my colleagues that your i mean, not to flatter you on your your podcast but <laughs> your podcasts are probably good enough for a novice to start and become mm. 
a kind of an expert. <laughs> what Thank you. Is all about. <laughs> so the case in point, in one of your earlier speakers also talked about that. Um, so if you see the, you know, before iPhone and after iPhone that people talk about, likewise, I say before iPad and after iPad. So if we take my, my daughter is not trained on any of these things. She goes on the, on the, on the iPad and she pinches and zooms because that is natural to make something big to say, make something small. And then you give her a mouse as a technology guy and then the screen and something, you know, where it doesn't, it doesn't do that. So she starts crying. In fact, we gave her a magazine and then she looked at the picture. She thinks that everything is, is picture and text. So she tries to do that on the magazine and it doesn't big, become big. And then she starts crying, you know, as to why, why it's not working. So it's the same thing. You know, in fact, most of our enterprise users today, there are some applications that don't change with the orientation of the device. When you when you change that to portrait to landscape and things like that, if the application doesn't change, they think that it's not working. <laughs> because as you said, the new faculties, new paradigms, new interfaces that are getting closer and closer to the natural way that we all interact. Once people get used to those things, Anything else is is really an exception and 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 the, and the blocking thing for them mm. from your system. Interesting, interesting. That is really good. Well, Raj, this has been absolutely fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a whirlwind. I feel as though like yeah, I feel as though I always feel as though I learn things on these podcasts. But every now and then, one comes along where you just feel as though you've kind of like one feel as though you've learned a load, but then at the same time, you start to feel as though you really don't understand things as much because there's a lot more to it. <laughs> it's all it's that typical kind of learning journey where like you kind of learn a bit and you get confident, and then you realise you scratch the surface and there's just far more underneath it. And so I'm loving this conversation about where this technology is going because as soon as you break out of pure language and you break into different modalities, you all of a sudden understand and start to realize that, you know, the kind of use cases that become available, plus the kind of technology that you need, plus the kind of promise of all of this technology is to help people get stuff done, uh, get out of the way, basically, get the technology out of the way of the experience and just let people naturally get on with whatever they need to do. And so I think sometimes we can get really bogged down in, in the kind of speech and language part of it and forget that it's all happening within the world that people exist within and the devices and technology that they use going about their daily lives needs to be the thing that bends in order to make them do whatever it is they need to do wherever they are. To my colleague, uh, Stefan, a good friend of mine from uh, USC ICT, their Moxie, you know, for example. Oh, uh, yes. You know, so uh, that's an example of, you know, what, what it is that we could do with multimodal things, whether mm. it comes to you know, social and emotional learning for kids. Uh, you know, these are all great examples of multimodal technology. And since you said, like, you know, we have been sponsoring the international conference, ACM International Conference on Multimodal Interaction for, for the last uh, you know 12 years or so, every year as a platinum sponsor, that is because we want to closely monitor where this technology is headed. Mm-hmm. And we're fortunate to have the some of the professors, leading professors in the space, uh, professor, like Professor Stacy Marcella, again, a lot of people from University of Southern California, ICT, uh, all of them you know, advising us and collaborating with us uh, in building the next uh, version of the greatest uh, virtual assistants that we could. 
Nice. Wicked, wicked. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in. Uh, do visit openstream.ai. Uh, the link to that will be in the show notes. It will be on the website and it will be in all of the places where you get your podcasts. So thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm on holiday next week, but I will be back next Thursday uh, where we'll be talking to uh, Sensory AI about edge-based computing which we kind of touched a little bit on today so we'll be building on that friend of ours yes todd 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 moser he's going to be on the show so looking forward to that uh cool ranch it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you appreciate ken thanks